We're in a series called Curious that we kicked off on Easter, and we are in this series, we're engaging some of life's toughest questions. And so we started off by asking the question, do dead people come back to life? Uh, We talked about the resurrection of Jesus and what that means for us and the possibility of resurrection for us. Uh, Last week, Ryan talked about the Bible, about the scriptures, and it it was such a great talk. If you haven't seen the first two talks, go on our Vimeo page or our website or podcast and watch them or listen to them. Um, Last week was so great. It was just so full of richness and depth. uh, It gave us this beautiful history of of the scriptures and how we got kind of this book that we have that speaks so much truth and life into us. Tonight, we want to ask a question that's a little bit difficult. Um, and we're going to go all sorts of places. Um, we're going to ask the question, what about heaven and hell? This is a huge question, right? It's a question that's been on the hearts and minds of many, especially in the last couple of years as uh, some specific books have come out and the conversation has elevated and there's been a lot of back and forth. And so we want to engage as a community and ask and explore this question together. What about heaven and hell? Um, Exactly a year ago, last April, it was April 9th, I believe, was the day. So uh, almost exactly one year ago, uh, I, um, I hopped on a plane and flew halfway around the world to South Korea, the motherland where my family is from, um, with my mom. Uh, the reason I did that, um, my father almost exactly one year ago passed away. Now, my father, without getting into the details of my story, my father was a man that I did not know. He and my mother separated before, long before I can remember. I was just an infant. And then my mom packed our things and we moved here to California. Uh, so I, I was not born here, which means I cannot be your president as much as you all want that. Um, but uh, someone's like, aw, you really wanted me to be, be your president. That would be bad. Um, so my father passed away, and, uh, and I did not know him at all. But I flew to Korea with my mother to bury him. And I remember getting picked up in a car and being driven straight to the morgue. And I walked into the morgue, and I saw the lifeless body of a stranger who was my father. And this was a man I did not know. I had met him maybe once in my adult life. I, I, right after high school, I took six months off and taught English in Korea because I wanted to see the motherland, and really mostly I just didn't want to go to college right away. Uh, but I hung out with him a couple of times while I was there, but it was all small talk, very surface level. And so this was a man that I did not know, and there he lay, his dead body. And I'm sitting in this room, and I I can remember it vividly, even though it was a year ago, all of my theology, all of my reading, all of the books I've read over my lifetime, and all the studying I had done about resurrection, and about eternity, and about heaven and hell, all of the Bible verses I had memorized, all of the scripture stories that I knew, all of those things came to a screeching halt, and it felt like my heart hit a brick wall. And I began asking all sorts of questions, like as, as though I were asking them for the very first time. Who, who was this man? Where is he now? What's happened to him? Is he here? Is he there? I, I'm, I have no idea. I'm confused. The stranger who was my father, who is now gone. 
And it brought me back to this fresh kind of renewed curiosity about heaven, hell, eternity, and what that all means for us. A few years ago, uh, my wife and I were married a little over four years ago, and for our honeymoon, we got to go to Europe, and one of the places we visited was Rome, and we went to the Vatican, and we walked into the Sistine Chapel, which is like Michelangelo's masterpiece, right? you got to see it in your lifetime, and against the far wall of the Sistine Chapel is this. It's called The Last Judgment. Now, the last judgment is Michelangelo's depiction of what he believes will happen at the end of time. And so he paints Jesus there in the center with his right hand raised and his left hand pointing down. And and Michelangelo's depiction of what happens at the end of time is this, that Jesus sends those who have said and done the right things while on earth, he sends them up to a place called heaven in the clouds. And those who have not done so, he damns to hell. And I would argue that for most of us, the world in which we have lived, the world in which we have grown up, the world in which we have been raised, this modern Western world, what our most prevalent understanding of heaven and hell is, is depicted in Michelangelo's Last Judgment. I would argue that for most of us, we see heaven and hell as a distant, far-off place that all of us will go post-mortem either to heaven or to hell. And that Jesus is at the center somewhat arbitrarily deciding the eternities of individuals, saying, if you did the right thing and said the right thing, then I will lift you up to a cloudy, blissful place in the skies, far off in the distance, called heaven, where there are marshmallows and harps and cold play. <laughs> right? Just endlessly. Just, right? Just lead guitars, just all endlessly for eternity and that if you did and said the wrong things that jesus will damn you to a fiery dark place in the depths somewhere off in the distance called hell where satan reigns with a pitchfork and a red satin cape (laughs) this is our understanding now i would argue that this sort of understanding about heaven and hell is not primarily shaped by the Bible and the truth of the Scriptures. It is primarily shaped by, by the influence, the heavy influence of classical Greek philosophy, which emphasizes, guys like Plato and Socrates, these names you've heard, it emphasizes that there is a distinct and massive separation between the physical and the spiritual. That there is a wide chasm between the material and the immaterial. 
Now, within the framework of that classical Greek philosophical understanding of the world, it's easy to see why we would begin to believe that heaven is a and heaven and hell are both post-mortem places that we will go once we die in this lifetime and our souls are disembodied to float off into the ethereal something. But the Bible tells us a different story. Before we continue, because some of you right now are nervous, you're wondering, did I come to a Christian church or is this something else? Is this Asian guy Buddhist is what you're thinking. (laughs) I believe, personally, and we believe here at Awakening, that there is a heaven and there is a hell and that all people will spend eternity in one or the other. And everyone said, oh, right? You're all, you're all like, okay, I could keep going to church here. <laughs> we believe that, but let's explore what that means. Because I would, I would pose for you tonight that in the Scriptures, heaven is not about where, but about who. Heaven is not about where, but who. The theologian G.K. Chesterton in his book Orthodoxy says, the poet only asks to get his head into the heavens. It is the logician, the one who is magnetized and gripped by logic and reason. It is the logician who seeks to get the heavens into his head, and it is his head that splits. The logical question to ask, the reasonable question to ask about heaven is, Where? Because right now I'm here, and at some point I will die. And the next logical question is, from there, death, where will I go? That's logical. But as Chesterton says, it is not logic that brings us the answer to this question. It is poetry. In the Old Testament, the psalmist in chapter 16, verses 9 to 11 The psalmist writes this, Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you, God, will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your your faithful see decay. This is a commentary from the psalmist about eternity, about what will happen upon death. He He or she continues, you make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy, and here's the key, in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. For the psalmist, the question of eternity has nothing to do with a location and it has everything to do with the presence of God. When I was a child, if you were to tell me that you were going to take me to Disneyland and drop me off, I would say, great, I don't care who comes. No one can come. It's better if no one comes because I can just run line to line and ride everything I want to ride. Happiest place on earth. 
But as I have grown up and matured and my heart has filled out a little bit, I have realized that I would much rather spend a leisurely day with loved ones, with my wife, family, good friends in my boring little house than every single day I want alone at the happiest place on earth. Because it is not about where. It is about who. Guys, you, some of you who are single, but you're chasing that girl. Courting is the Christian term, right? (laughs) Those of you men who are courting that woman, you are willing right now to go to that opera if she wants to go. You are willing right now to go see Wicked for the seventh time if she says, we're going to go see Wicked for the seventh time. Because it matters not, it matters little, if anything, where. What matters is the who. And the the Bible is clear about this. Uh, The psalmist continues in Psalm 73, continues writing about this. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. This is a psalm about eternity, about heaven. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Did you catch what the psalmist said? Who do I have in heaven except you? No one. It's all about you. Who do I care? Who who cares what I've got on earth besides you? It's all about you. For the psalmist, as the psalmist writes about eternity, the psalmist says, heaven, earth, doesn't matter. It is about you, God. It is about your presence in my life. That is heaven. That is all I need. It is all I want. That is the deepest and the only longing of my heart. Heaven is you. It is not a roadmap to a place. It's you. The psalmist continues, those who are far from you will perish. The psalmist writes that to be separate from God, that, that's perishing, that's hell. A little more on that in a minute. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you, all those who turn and leave you. But for me, and here's the key, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. And it's not just the psalmist in the Old Testament. Because Jesus talks about heaven. There's this really famous passage in the Gospel of John that many people go to as their point of reference as to what Jesus has to say about heaven. Here's what he says. John chapter 14, verses 1 to 7. Jesus is talking to his disciples about eternity, and he says this, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. Those of you who were children of the 90s and you grew up in youth group, you used to blast this audio adrenaline song called Big, Big House. 
with lots and lots of rooms and you thought heaven was a place where you can play football. <laughs> That's what you believed. That's what I believed. Every week, week after week, I'd show up to youth group. My youth pastor would just blast that song. We'd be like, yeah. And then I'd go home and be like, wow, my actual house here sucks. <laughs> and I'd get out. And like, how do I get there? That's amazing. I never get to play football at my house. <laughs> That comes from this, these words of Jesus. And yet we stop at this point right here. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? We stop there and we think to ourselves, well, see, there it is. Jesus says very clearly that heaven is a place. It's a house with lots of rooms somewhere far off in the distance. And he just said he's going to go there to prepare a place for us. So that we can leave this place. And yet Jesus continues, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be, and here's the key, where I am. Where I am. Not that you may also be in the big, big house with lots and lots of rooms where you can play football, but that you may be where I am, that we may be wherever Jesus is, because wherever Jesus is, wherever God the Father is, that is heaven, because heaven is not about where, it is about who. The passage continues. He says, I'll come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. And then Jesus says something really strange. You know the way to the place where I am going. What? Thomas asks the question that we are all thinking. Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? We make fun of Thomas all the time. We call him Doubting Thomas. Thomas is the best because Jesus says, I'm going there preparing a room for you and you're going to come with me because you're going to be where I am. Check it out. You know how to get there already. You know the way. And all the disciples are like, oh, yeah, for sure, for sure. No, I got it. <laughs> yeah, no, for, yeah, no, no, no. It's cool. I got it. Yeah, I know how to get there. And Thomas says... Yeah, I don't, it's just, I don't, I don't know, I don't even know what you're talking about. It's just me, it's just me. I don't know, what are you talking about? Wait, I don't, right? That's what he says. And then here is Jesus' profound response. Jesus answered, and you all know this, and we just skim over it like it means nothing. Jesus answers, I am the way. I am the way. You see, the way to heaven is not a roadmap. It is not, it's not a list of to-dos and to-don'ts. It is not a list of rules to keep or rules to live by. It is not a checklist of Christianity on which you must do 12 things and not do 12 other things in order to get a golden ticket to the pearly gates. Jesus says, you know the way because the way is personified in me. Heaven is not just a place. 
It's a person. It's me. I am the way. If you know Jesus, you know heaven. If you have Jesus, you have heaven. This is what he says. He continues, no one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. The theologian and philosopher Dallas Willard says this beautifully. God's presence is precisely the word, what the word heaven, or more accurately, the heavens in plural, conveys in the biblical record as well as through much of Christian history. Here is what we believe. Heaven is God's reality. It is the fullness of his presence, both here and now and for all time. You and I see glimpses of heaven all the time in the selfless acts of people who are giving themselves to better the lives of the marginalized and the broken. You, you hear it in the laughter of children so deeply loved by their mothers and fathers that they live free. You see it on the wedding day of your best friends as they say yes to a life of committed, sacrificial love to one another. I've, I've seen it recently in the lives of a, a, f- a couple of friends of mine who have been trying for years to have a child and then went through years of the adoption process and just a few weeks ago brought home their child. If you were there, you would know that it was heaven. And so now... The really crappy part. Hell. Because here's the deal. I wish we could end right here. You know what I mean? I wish I could just say, and that's all, you guys. See you later. <laughs> I wish that were true. I, like, I wish you might all get angry at me. Like, what about justice? You know what? Honestly, my personal wish, I wish there were no hell. I wish that no one went to hell. I wish that the, the worst of sinners, maybe not the worst, right? There are some things, genocide, stuff like that, right? Child abuse, things like that, like re- really severe stuff. I'm like, yeah, there's a part of me that's like, yeah, to hell with you, literally to hell with you. But for most people, I'm like, ah, I just wish we could all kind of be loved by God and go to heaven together. But here's the reality. Hell is real, And it is a choice. And so many choose it. And the choice is for separation. Hell is choosing separation. Let's look at the scriptures really quick. In the Bible, there are three main words that are translated into the English hell. First, there is the the Hebrew word sheol, which is exclusively in the Old Testament. It's referenced a couple times in the New, but it's in the Bible 65 times. Then there's the Greek word Hades, which some of you know from Greek mythology. That word Hades is actually used to reference hell as well. That's in the Bible 11 times. 
And then there's a word called Gehenna, which is another uh, a word. It's a word actually that Jesus uses almost exclusively to reference hell, and that's in the Bible 12, <coughs> excuse me, 12 times. Now, most of the time, these words are translated as hell. On occasion, they'll be translated as like pit or grave, but most of the time, it's translated as hell. Now, Jesus uses, he talks about hell, and when he does, Jesus uses exclusively, he uses the word Gehenna. Gehenna actually means the valley, Geh is the valley, and Henna is Hinnom. The Valley of Hinnom. The Valley of Hinnom is a geographic place. It's actually, if you go to the south of Jerusalem, even today, you will see this narrow ravine. That actually is the Valley of Hinnom. You can go to Gehenna. You can go to hell right now. It's in Israel. A little rift valley. If you tweet just that little sentence, like, my career is over, so don't. Gehenna was a place centuries before the time of Jesus. It was a place that was actually used to offer child sacrifices to an Ammonite false god called Molech. So people from all over the known world at the time would would come to Gehenna and they would take their infants and to appease the god Molech, they would kill their babies in the valley of Hinnom in Gehenna. And so because of this, Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom, was constantly lit up with fire. And it was the fire of burning children. And so Gehenna became a place synonymous with darkness and depravity and evil. During the time of Jesus, many scholars believe that Gehenna, it was no longer used as a place for child sacrifice. However, it was actually, most scholars believe, it was used as the city dump. And so there were actually still fires there. People would show up with their garbage, dump it down, light a fire, and it would burn up. It would burn up everywhere. And so when Jesus talks about hell, and he talks about the fires of hell, he is actually pointing to a very real visual. People would know what he was talking about. Now, I would argue it is way too, it's way too uh, um, irresponsible to simply say that Jesus didn't actually talk about an eternal uh, separation from God. He's literally talking about if you uh, wrong your brother, you're going to have to go live in that valley forever. That's, that's actually, that can't be true, although some scholars have argued that it can't be true because not once does he actually condemn a person to a physical place that way. It also cannot be true that Jesus, this, the reality may be true, but it cannot be read from the text that Jesus is trying to make a literal, physical description of a place called hell. Does that make sense? We have to land somewhere in the middle, and here is what is important. Just as heaven is not about where, but about who, hell is not about what, but about who. More aptly put, not who is heaven, but who is not. I mean, who is hell, but who is not hell? Who is the farthest thing from hell? 
Jesus, when he teaches on hell, he always connects it to very earthy, real, tangible things. He talks, and you can read these texts for yourself. I would challenge you to do so. He talks about anger and adultery and lustful thoughts. He talks to the religious elite and to hypocrites. And you know what's really frightening? This week, I read all the places where Jesus talks about hell multiple times, and every time I read them, it was scary because I thought to myself, he's talking to me. I've, I've done that. I, I'm like kind of the religious elite. I think I know it all. I'm, I'm, I'm angry sometimes. I'm, real, I'm lustful, right? Jesus says, even if you don't actually literally commit adultery, right? if you lust with your eyes and your mind, you've committed adultery. Well, I'm an adulterer because I'm a broken, messed up person. And it's scary. See, I, I wish this weren't in the Bible, but it is. Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, they will be punished with everlasting destruction. And here's the key. Shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Hell is the non-presence. It is the absence of God. And it is a choice that we all make. We wish that God wouldn't judge this way, but judgment is necessary. This is what the scholar N.T. Wright says. Judgment, the sovereign declaration that this is good and to be upheld and vindicated and that is evil and to be condemned is the only alternative to chaos. Judgment is necessary. Evil must be identified, named, and dealt with before there can be reconciliation. Judgment must happen because we all have a choice to make. C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce, he writes, there are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. Hell is a choice. We can choose to live separate from God. Scholars call this dehumanization. That God created us to be human a certain way, and yet we choose to become less and less human. We see it on the news all the time in the ways we treat one another, in the ways humanity harms each other, in the brokenness and the pain of our world, war and suffering and famine. The marginalized starving to death while the rich get richer. This is not a political statement. It is a spiritual one that God has placed in us imago Dei, the image of God, love, compassion, selflessness, grace, kindness, mercy. And when we choose to live apart from that, we are becoming less and less human. And that, is the road to hell. The story of the Bible, without getting into all the details, is creation, fall, Israel, Jesus, new creation. And the only reason that's important tonight is because of what book ends the story. We begin with creation and we end with new creation. And at the fall, the, the process of dehumanization began. And from that point on, we have a choice to continue the path to hell Separation from God, being less than human, or allowing God to renew us into new creation. Hell is a reality without God. 
Hell is choosing separation from God and in turn choosing to be less than human. Hell is the place where people go to cease being what God created them to be. Paul writes in Philippians chapter three, verses 18 to 19, for as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. So what does that mean for us today? Well, Paul gives us the answer in the very following sentence. Verse 20 but our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. Uh, I'm gonna, let me extrapolate this a little bit, so just bear with me. It's a little bit kind of weird, um, but really important. Paul is writing during the height of the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire, which at the time ruled from modern-day England all the way down to modern-day India, they ruled basically all of the known world at the time. They were brilliant. They were genius because they were actually the first empire that would conquer a land, and then instead of completely destroying the land and rebuilding it as a mini-Rome, they would essentially conquer a land, and then they would tell the people, listen, we're not going to destroy you and then just build our own stuff. We are going to simply redeem all the stuff you have right now, your culture, your music, your food, all of it. We're going to redeem it and point it to what is true and good, and that is the glory of Rome and the glory of the Roman emperor Caesar. It was brilliant. And, and they would charge these super insanely high taxes, but at least the people in the colonies were like, okay, they didn't like murder us and just destroy everything and rebuild. They're saying we could keep worshiping our gods, but that Caesar is the one true God, or like the God, or all this stuff. Okay, like whatever, fine. It was brilliant. I mean, they ruled so much at the time because of this methodology. And what they would call these places, these places, these states essentially, right, that the empire would rule over is the Greek word polituma. And the Greek word polituma is the word Paul uses here to describe our relationship with heaven. That we are a polituma of heaven. That we are citizens of an empire. But it is not the empire of Rome. It is not the empire of sex and money and rock and roll. It is not the empire of success. It is not the empire of fame. It is not the empire of, of whatever it is you can think of that your life is about right now. It is the empire of Jesus our king. And you are citizens of that empire. And the places in which you live, that is to become a colony or state of that empire. God is not coming to rescue you from that place to a distant place far away. God has placed you here. These are the words of Paul. God has placed you here as a citizen of heaven. God has placed you here to redeem and restore all things for the sake and the glory and the fame of heaven. 
Because heaven is not a question of where. It is a question of who and where God reigns. If God is present, then it is heaven. When my father um, passed away, uh, the second day I was in Korea, we had a memorial service for him at this place, and we're about to do the memorial and, and all the kind of ritualistic stuff, and I'm, you know, I'm in a daze. I have no idea what's going on. And these two vans pull up, and the doors swing open, and about 20 people, really well-dressed, kind of older in their 50s and 60s and 70s, start walking out, and about 20 of them start marching toward us. And I look at them, and I can tell they've got, they've got Bibles in their hands. My father was not a Christian. I mean, he lived, his life was lived in hell. His life was literally a living hell. And these people start walking up to us, and the man who clearly is kind of like leading the charge comes up to my mother and I and asks if we are the family of the deceased. And I say, yes, I, I'm his son. And this man proceeds to tell me that he's the, the pastor of a local church, of a small church of about 50, 60 people in town. And he tells me that about four years ago, my father walked into his church walked up to him after a service and said, I'm not a Christian, but my son is a pastor in America. And so I figured I would just check it out. The pastor proceeded to tell me that two years before my father passed away, he received Jesus into his life. That he spent the final years of his life praying for his church for his city, for my mother, and for me. That he um, would give his time to the church. Uh, my father was really into photography, and so he would bring his camera and snap pictures. They were, telling, they were laughing about this story of how overzealous my father got with taking pictures that some Sundays he would forget that the pastor was preaching and he would just stand right in front of his face and snap pictures. And people were like, get out of the way. <laughs> And then they proceeded to show me some pictures of the church, pictures that were in the church bulletin and things like that that my father had taken. There was a group of strangers that surrounded me at my father's memorial service who made a decision. They met a man who had lived the story of hell his entire life. And rather than saying lost cause, he hasn't done the right things, he doesn't have the GPS coordinates to heaven, they said we are citizens of heaven and we will redeem and restore all that we come in contact with. And so they loved my father, they surrounded him, they cared for him in his final days, they visited him when no one else visited him. Does this sound familiar? Jesus talks about this. And my father passed away in the love and care of citizens of heaven, kingdom people who I'd never met. And so here is what I know about my father. I don't know where he is. But I know with certainty 
who he's with. And that's heaven. And this is our call to live as citizens of that reality. That God has come for us, he is with us now, and heaven is coming for us. Because heaven is Jesus himself and the presence of God the Father. And our call in this life is to live in such a way that all those choosing separation from God, marching, living hell now and marching toward hell forever would see that heaven has come for them and that they might say yes to its invitation. Uh, Ryan and the guys are going to come up and we're going to sing one last song. And Here's what I would ask. If anything that was said tonight sparked something in you, if it, uh, if it did something in your soul, maybe you have questions and you're not sure. Maybe you um, want to make a decision and say, I've been living hell my entire life and I want to say yes to heaven. Or if you are a kingdom citizen, a citizen of heaven, but your life feels like hell right now, whatever it might be, um, some of our leaders are going to be in the back. Myself, uh, Michael, Lori, if you're willing, that would be great. Felicia, I think I saw Felicia right here, will be back there. Tony will be back there as well, and I'll be back there. If you just need some prayer or someone to listen, come back there and find us. And let's pray. I'm not talking about like, oh, maybe next time, maybe later, maybe when we're done. I'm talking right now. I'm going to pray and then come join us if you just need to talk or make a decision or if you have questions or you just need prayer. That's why we're here. The rest of us will sing this song of God's relentless pursuit of us, heaven crashing into earth because God wants us so bad. We'll sing that song and then we'll close tonight. Let me pray for us and then we'll sing and pray in the back. God, we love you. We thank you for who you are and for what you've done. We thank you that heaven is not a place that we have to find. It is a person. It is you. It is your presence in our lives. For those of us who are wrestling with that reality, would you stir in us in such a way that there is no denying your presence in this room and in our hearts. And for those of us who know you and love you and follow you and yet life feels like hell, would you bring your peace that surpasses understanding and would you heal in ways that only you can heal? God, whatever it is our hearts are, are going through, each and every story in this room, meet us where you need to meet us and pull us into the places where you need to pull us. Change us and make us new that we might be kingdom people, citizens of heaven, and that we might usher in heaven on the earth. In Jesus' name, amen.